Okay, here we go. July the 28th, 2013, lecture discussion number 118 on the book of Romans. Now we're going to start out because uh, I made a couple of comments a while back. And immediately, uh, whenever that happens, I get mail. I'm just going to read. Uh, this is the one I, we got from uh, Sharon in Texas. She writes big now. What she says is, glory, hallelujah. Are we starting a new trend here? We're going to get notes. What Dave did is he put notes in. Uh, did, how did you do that? Did you uh, implant them into the... Uh, uh, into the? Uh, I don't know anything about this. How did you... Okay, so apparently when you, when you click on the sermon, now these notes pop up. I had no idea. I'm, I'm thinking subliminal messages. Sin donuts. Let's try that, huh? Yeah, I know. I mean, we, can, we have the technology. Let's, let's try it. Anyway, glory, hallelujah. Are we starting a new trend here? We're going to get notes. Wow. Can whiteboard photos or even be still my heart video be far behind? Yay. And then she goes to take me. I think it's her. But some, one of them took me to task uh, because they said whack-a-mole is already a word. And I know that. I did not say whack-a-mole. I said whack-a-mole, past tense. It's a verb, like whack-a-mole. It's also an adverb, as you know, whack-a-mole. Things are whack-a-mole. He did that in a whack-a-mole way. But uh, that's what I was saying. So I have to tamp down the rebellion uh, and enough of that. Anyway, uh, uh, the reason that uh, we don't have video yet is we just don't have the people to do it yet. Uh, we're certainly on the table. We talk about it a lot. Uh, that would be, um, I think, a valuable thing, especially I get the same questions a lot over and over. It would be nice to have those questions uh, answered with the, with the whiteboard behind. I think that would be very valuable. But I don't want to encourage them uh, because our vast Internet audience is nothing if not relentless, so we've got to be a little careful here. Okay, here we go again now. Uh, Romans... Lecture number 118. And we left off last Sunday at the New Bowl. The New Bowl. And what I'm going to do today, and it's down there at the bottom. It's on page 13 or 14. Uh, by the way, the, the, my brother, I came in here today, and there was, a, there was a lecture sitting right here on the table. I thought for a second, wow, I'll just take this one. Or maybe I'll steal it and do it next week, but um, that's not going to happen. Anyway, uh, the New Bowl was where we left off. I just mentioned that because he had 13 pages and, and I had, I've got 15 pages, so uh, it's kind of a contest. But in any event, uh, uh, we left off at the New Bowl and at the back of the New Bowl lecture and the salt, let me put the salt next to it because you can't separate the two of them. They are a pair. Whenever you talk about the New Bowl of Second Kings 2, you're going to talk about the salt with it. They're, they're essential to understand that symbol. But in the back, I'm going to get to... Um, let me look again for you. It's back here on page uh, page 13. It's Psalm 22. I'm going to try to fix for you over uh, maybe today, certainly over the next uh, couple of weeks, why Christ said, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" When it is obvious that God can't forsake God. It's not. Uh, try to 
tie that where it belongs, and clearly it belongs to Second Kings, or First and Second Kings. So you begin to understand why he said what he said, and you don't have this, uh, I don't know how to say it any other way, the silly concept that something was going on. There's an abandonment of God to God, or God had turned his back on, on himself, or whatever you have. An indefensible, it's a very emotional position, I get that. And people like to cry, oh, poor Christ. Uh, he was his, he, God turned his back on Christ. Uh, that's just um, very poor thinking and indefensible for that matter. But th- that means what? That it is predominant in the church. People like to believe it. When I say that people like to be wrong in the church, this is one of the places. And we'll have to uh, get to that. But that, that's at the end of this lecture. Hopefully I'll get that. Get there today. But we left off again at the new bowl and the salt of Second Kings 2. Elisha responds to the request of the men of the city of Jericho. They come to him and they say, we have problems. We have problems here. Our water is bad and our ground is barren. Nothing will grow here and our water isn't any good. And uh, right off the bat, you should know Joshua. Uh, and let me, Whenever I write Joshua, that's the same as writing what? Yeshua. That's, I might as well write Jesus Christ. Certainly Jesus. They're the same word. Joshua 6.26. Uh, there's a curse on this city. God cursed it. And they're coming to Elisha saying, we gotta, we're, we're struggling here. And that raises some obvious questions right off the bat. Well, why would somebody live in a cursed city where the water was toxic and the ground was waste. Who lives in a poisonous environment willingly? Okay, there's the, there's the question. Who does that? Who will willingly live in a poisonous environment? Well, all of us do that, right? Uh, clearly, now you're beginning to understand immediately. We all live in a, a fallen state on a decaying earth, and we all have the poisonous mortogenic factor in us, and we think it's good. That's what makes these people unique. They figured out it was bad. And they also figured out that Elisha could fix it. Anyway, Elisha heals the water and the land of Jericho, and he uses a new bowl and some salt. And this miracle is immediately following the search for the body of Elijah. So they witness the search for the body of Elijah, where, where Elisha says, you can't find the body. And that, of course, is a, is a reference to the, ref, uh, to the resurrection, the body resurrection of Christ, much to the dismay of the Jehovah's Witnesses. But in any event, that, this miracle of the new bowl and salt follows that. Uh, it's subsequent to the search for the body of Elijah. And the order of events not to go unnoticed. It caused an effect. Always read the Bible. Say, what caused the new bowl and the salt? Well, what caused the new bowl and the salt is the city leaders came and said, we're under a curse. What made him come to Elisha? Well, what made him come to Elisha is he said, don't go look for the body. All of that fits together. One makes the other happen. So don't ignore the order of events, nor should the contrast with the killing of the smoting of the Jordan River and the healing of the dead water. So I got verse 14, Elisha is killing the Jordan River, smoting it. And then here in verse 21, he's healing water. So that contrast shows up. Okay, we should at least reread 2 Kings 2 
so that you've all got this. I don't know if it's in the bulletin or not. There are many Sundays where Lori and I are just trying to survive and we don't always get everything done. Okay, 2 Kings 2, 19. Then the men of the city, then, that tells you that they saw this issue of looking for the body of Elijah and it it impacted them. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. Please notice things look good. But the water is bad and the ground is barren. Our water is poisoned and our ground will grow nothing. It looks good until you peel that back a little bit. And Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water. The source of the water. That's so important because what is the source of the water? And that takes you immediately to all the sources of water in the Bible. Go find all the water sources. And the most important one that you'll ever read is Joshua 3.16 that says the Jordan River, the source of the river that descends into death and judgment in the Dead Sea, the source of that river is the city of what? Adam. So, he goes to the source of the river, of the water, I'm sorry, and he tells them, and cast in the salt there, and they and, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day according to the word of Elisha with which he spoke. Then, there's your second then. So first then happens because of the search for the body. Now the second then. Then he went up to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some soldiers came from the city of of. Bethel, their Baalness, Baalzebubbers, as I say a lot, from the city, and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse. So I have a curse here of the water and the city. Now I have another curse. And pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled forty-two of the soldiers. Okay? So, notice those two thi- those thens. Things are happening. He goes to Bethel because of the new bowl and salt healing. He does the new bowl and salt healing because of the uh, futile search that should have never happened for the body of Elijah. Those two thens are telling us that there is a cause and effect. The shameful search for the body of Elijah causes the men of the cursed city of Jericho to beg for and plead for healed water and land. They recognize immediately the significance of the fact we can't find the body. And that this guy knows you can't find the body. If he knows you can't find the body, then maybe he can lift this curse. Maybe he knows how to end the curse. And he did. Be a new bull and a salt, right? And they plead and beg for water and land to be restored. And that's not unlike, by the way, the third captain in Elijah 
in second King, and Elijah in second Kings one thirteen. He he pleads for his life and the life of his men. So you have people who understand something. That captain understood this is the real thing. This is somebody who really is from God. I am not gonna go up against him. I will take physical death at the hands of the king if I'm caught before I'll go up against the man of God. And now you're beginning to look at things like, where does that happen in the New Testament? Who decides to take physical death instead of going against God? There's your mark of the beast. There's your battle of Armageddon. And all of it is in little tiny pictures all over Second Kings. So, <coughs> Jericho, again, I should read this to you. Joshua 6, 26. So let's read that. Because Jericho just isn't cursed. It's cursed. Then Joshua. And again, if I write Joshua, what should I say? I could say it just as easily. I could say Jesus there. I could, the, the words are interchangeable. Then Joshua changed them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with the firstborn, and his youngest he shall set up its gates. Okay? So God curses Jericho. This Jericho is cursed by God. What's the implication when God curses something? And by the way, people do try to build it and it doesn't go well. But now we have this situation where there are people inside a cursed city that God has cursed. So the bunch of questions. The implication of cursed by God is fantastic. What should you do right there? If God is issuing the curse, what should you do? You should go and find everything that God has cursed. But ask this really fast. Why is Elisha ending this curse? Actually, it's God's going to end it. But why? Because he says, thus says the Lord, right? I'm ending this. Let me go back to that. Let me repeat that. Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from, from it. There shall be no more death or barrenness. No more. So the water remains healed to this day. God ends the curse. So obvious question, why? And Elisha knew that God would heal it, end the curse. Based on the actions of those city leaders who came and said, Hey, you knew about the body? Obviously, you can end the curse. And God does. So something doctrinal, something of great doctrinal significance is occurring at 2 Kings 2.19-22, through 2, God is ending his curse. Think about it. Keep repeating it. God is ending his curse. The curse that Yeshua places on Jericho is being ended. And we're doing it with a new bowl and some salt. And the curse is lifted. And then another curse falls on the 42 who mock and seek to kill Elisha, the Baal soldiers. So I have a curse that ends, and then I have a curse that's pronounced. That's a very important pattern there. I have the ending of a curse, and then I have the pronouncing of a curse. Why does God end the curse? Better question, for whom does he end it? He ended it for these men that came to Elisha. 
And on whom does God pronounce a curse? He pronounces a curse on men that came to kill Elijah. And I keep repeating curse. I'm trying to move you somewhere in Scripture. God cursed and God ends his curse. Where am I trying to move you? I keep saying it so that you will immediately go to the correct place in the Bible. And, and, and I hope you have. Obviously, the men of Jericho believed that the one who said not to look for the body would be able to end the curse. And also, obviously, the ones who mock and threaten, the, one, the ones who come to kill Elisha, they end up being themselves cursed. So, now, why would anyone want to mock and kill the one who can heal poisoned water and poisoned ground. I got poisoned water and poisoned ground and I got a guy that can fix it. All he needs is a new bowl and some salt. And he fixes it. Why do I want to kill him? See, that's always fascinating to me. I know the answer, by the way. I have Christ. Every time Christ is anywhere, people run to him and they're healed of everything. They run, they dive on him. Do whatever they can. Those are very smart people. You got women pushing their way through crowds, diving, just trying to grab his talit, knowing they're going to be healed. And people want to get, and by the way, he's a, he's a walking, he's a combination of McDonald's and Safeway. He's a, he can feed anybody and everybody. He's portable. He's meals on wheels. Why would anybody, this is the golden goose, why would anybody want to stop him from feeding people and healing people? Immediately after Elisha fixes the water in Jericho, the people in Bethel want to kill him. Why? If you don't like him, just put him in a room, use him whenever the water goes bad. It makes no sense. Yes, it does make sense. It really does. They want bad water and they want dead ground. And anybody that heals the water and heals the ground, we got to stop him. Are they wishing for the death of everyone? Do they desire that no one gets saved, no one gets any water, no one gets any food, no one gets anything? Is that what they're wishing for? Yeah. That's what they're doing. Short answer, yep. What kind of mind wants people to die? Die of starvation, die of thirst. Who wants that? See, a smart guy would say, just go wherever you want, Elijah. Take as many bowls as you want. Here's some salt. Go fix all the water in the whole place. Not these guys. We've got to kill him. As soon as they find out he's fixed the water in Jericho, they come after him to kill him. Got to stop him. We gotta stop him from providing water and food to people. See, a reprobate, darkened mind does that, doesn't it? And now you know the motive of who? That's right, Judas. That's for free. Who do you know the motive of? Who does this? Who, who wants people to die? Okay, once again. How do we explain the meaning of the new bowl and the salt? See, God says, this is what I want. I want a new bowl and I want salt. This ceremony with these symbols. See, i got this specific ceremony and these specific symbols. Obviously, there's something. What are they? 
Something that heals water and, and ends the curse. There's something that ends the curse on the water and the land. So they've got to be pictures of Jesus Christ. That's what they are. He somehow is a new bowl and salt. Jesus Christ is the ender of the curse, isn't he? This is where I wanted you to go. I wanted you to go to Genesis what? 3.17. That is specifically where the ground is cursed by God. And Adam is cursed by God for his sake. And here's the place where the curse by God is being ended. So Genesis 3.17 has to be on the board here. The curse of the ground. So we can start there at the least. But as always... Uh, off we should go everywhere in the Bible and find any place where water is made pure um, and, and land is returned to life. We've got to go find all the water purification, all the land returned to life, and, and find all the bowls. Now, what's the obvious question about the bowl? Yeah, everybody asks me all the time, is it Tiffany's? No, but that's a good place to start. What's the obvious question by, about the bowl? What's it made out of? Is it a wood bowl? I don't think so. It's new. You don't usually describe wood as new. Wood is carved. I'm pretty sure I know what kind of board it is because uh, what kind of board, what kind of bowl it is. But I got to find all the bowls. And the first place I go is Leviticus 14. And Leviticus 14 is so important because that is, again, as I always like to say, evidence that God has a sense of humor. But I'm going to argue that it is a new pottery bowl because of Leviticus 14. It's an earthen vessel that is new. And all of a sudden now I'm into all of the potter and pottery uh, symbolism that is in Scripture. We know, we sing the songs, right? He's the potter, we're the clay, all of those things. That's right out of the Bible. He describes himself as the potter, and he describes us as pottery, something that he makes. Okay? Christ, his first revealed miracle, and I say revealed because obviously Mary knew he could do something. And so she knows that he's capable of amazing things. Uh, so clearly he has done something that, that she is aware of. But his first time he begins his ministry in public, if you will, the first thing he does is there's a bunch of cracked, busted pottery pots over there. And he has uh, people uh, fill them with water. Now you can imagine what they thought. How do I know they're busted? Because I looked up all the pottery pots that he deals with. And it is obvious when you do that that these are broken pots at that wedding. So all, those, all that pottery is busted, cracked, pieces, holes. Eric would set up in our house because it's got a long hallway through the living room, dining room. It's really just one great big hallway. We eat in the hallway. But Eric figured out that it made a wonderful BB gun facility. So he would set up targets on this end by the window. What could go wrong? And he would go back all the way to the, by the bedroom door in the prone position and shoot at stuff. And we would find the remnant for years of his marksmanship. 
What did you use to keep uh, from the, no more than 40% of the BBs embedded into the sheetrock? So you had to, would you have a blanket or something? A blanket. Yeah. I thought I remembered that. Uh, we always admired his ingenuity. And he had no fear. He thought it was such a good idea that I'd come in and go, wow, that's really cool, which I did. That's another story. That's what we call good parenting. Anyway, Christ's first revealed miracle is the cracked pots at the wedding. And he tells those guys, they got a bunch of water. He says, hey, go get this water. I want you to pour the water in the busted pots. And, I, and I'm positive that's what he did. And they looked at him like, you have got, to, okay, you're the boss. We will go put the, pot, the water in the busted pots. As they're pouring the water into the pots, the pots are what? Restored. And not only that, the water turns to wine. So that's that miracle. That's what was extraordinary there. And you know, of course, the wine is a symbol of living blood. See, communion. So you have this picture that emerges, don't you, of useless dead pottery that is restored by the potter when it is filled with water that turns into his blood. And all of that's there now for you to recognize. That's what he's doing with us. We are cracked, busted pots and he's going to pour his blood into us and restore us. And the money thrown to the potter at Zechariah 11.13 and Matthew 27.5, Judas throws the money at the potter. Everyone knows the significance of that uh, and uh, that has studied the Bible at all. We don't know it anymore. We think Judas had remorse. He did not. He had frustration, if you wish for anything. He's trying to be the one that throws the money to the potter because he knows that the shepherd does that. Christ is both the shepherd and the potter in Zechariah 11.13. Judas has an understanding of that. Anyway, all of this great imagery that declares God to be the creator, he's the one that is the maker, we're the clay, we're one part clay, one part spirit, he's the great potter, we're the busted pots, and when we crack, and the pottery returns to what? Dust from which it was made. And you have this potter's field that uh, Judas made sure he was hung over. So, so all of that, so far so good. I hope you got all of that. There's a lot there for you to go. Especially uh, now when we add to the ceremony of Le- Leviticus 14. And remember, you've heard me say it so many times, that is the cleansing ritual for the cured bald head. So when I get a bald head, a leper come back to me and I'm the priest, I have to do this Leviticus 14 um, a ceremony, ritual, and none had, no one had ever done it before because nobody had ever healed any bald heads before until Christ came in and healed all of them, thousands and thousands of them. And so that ritual, again, to, for those who have missed it in the past, I have two birds and I have one killed in a earthen vessel in pottery bowl, a bowl of pottery. I take one and I kill it in the bowl, the pottery bowl, and I pour water on it. Moving water. Water's got to be moving over it. And then the second bird is then dipped into the blood of the first bird and let loose. This is what I do when I have a cured leper come back to me and I'm a priest. Notice, cured, healed leper. It's a ritual that declares the leopard to be cleansed. And so, 
Notice that we have the death of the first bird in the pottery bowl with the water poured over it and the shedding of blood. And then the second bird obtains, I could barely say that word, so I need medicine, obtains the shed blood of the first bird and lives. So there's your picture, right? So, all, of, all the uh, obtaining of blood is in the earthen bowl. So I have to go into the earthen bowl and get the blood out of the earthen bowl on the second bird, and then that bird lives. That's the ritual of the cured leper. Now, add the bitter dead water made pure of Second Kings, uh, and um, also the two goats that's Leviticus 16. Might as well throw that in while i got time, because there I've got two goats, one is slain and one is released. And the one that is released is, is sent out into the wilderness to testify that he has no sin in him um, in front of Satan and his fallen angels, Azazel. And that, by the way, is Matthew 4. That's what Christ is doing at Matthew 4. He is going into the wilderness in front of Satan and his angels and testifying. He is the second goat. He's also the first goat. I have two goats, just like I have two birds. So those all have to be mixed together into this uh, big solution that is trying to figure out the new bowl and the salt and, and Psalm 22. Because if I can figure this out, I can figure out why he says Psalm 22.1 from the cross. And then, not surprisingly, I got 2 Kings 6. That's where Elisha throws a stick into the Jordan River and he floats up an axe head. And the axe head is this very precious. A guy loses his, he borrows an axe head. And an axe head is extremely valuable. There's no way he could ever earn enough money in his lifetime to pay off the person that owned that axe head. So there's your picture already, right? He drops it into the Jordan River, death, judgment, descending into death and judgment from Adam. He drops this axe head. He can't get it back. He, the only way he can pay for that axe head is to be what? Executed. It's that valuable. He's in despair and Elisha takes a stick, throws it into the water, and the axe head floats to the surface. So you know that the stick is who? That's Christ going into the water. That's the exact place where he was baptized by John the Baptist. The exact spot the ark is there. Well, he likes this spot. That axe head floats to the top. Precious thing that, that you cannot get it and repay for it when you lose it. So there's your soul. You've lost your soul. Stick is thrown in, the axe head is lifted up, and this great statement in the Bible, Elisha says to the man, reach down and pick it up. The implications of that is amazing. Because what is that, boys and girls? That's free will, baby. Nice, nicely done, Dave, in the second row. That's what that is. So you've got the recovery, the, the throwing of the stick, the floating and the retrieval of the lost precious axe head that is sunk into death and judgment. 
that's in 2 Kings 6. And then you have Moses at Exodus 15 throws a tree into the bitter waters of Marah and makes them sweet. So you've got all of these things now, all of these pieces. Don't have time to put them on the board. For today, I should read Ezekiel uh, 47.9. But I just make sure you get all the pieces and then uh, you're on your own, right? Let me find Ezekiel 47.9. This is uh, probably the one that is the most valuable to you for solving the, uh, the new bowl and the salt. And it shall be that every living thing that, that moves wherever the rivers go will live. So let me set that up for you. The Holy of Holies, the King of the Messiah, the King of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Christ Himself is on the throne and he is in the Holy of Holies where he belongs. And out of the Holy of Holies in the, in the millennial temple, the temple of Ezekiel, comes this living river. And wherever and rivers, and it branches off, wherever the rivers go, okay, let me read. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the liver, rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish. Because these waters go there, for they will be healed. And everything will live wherever the river goes. Now, what that means isn't the way it's normally uh, depicted. I'll have to explain it over next week. But just know for now that wherever the river goes, everything lives. Except the swamps and the marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. So, again, repeating, the, the healing waters that flow from Christ out of the temple, bringing life to every living thing, and everything will live wherever the rivers go. I'm going to tell you that every means every, and everything means everything. Everything that touches this water lives. And evaluate that sentence. Wherever this river goes, whatever touches this river lives. That, of course, is the woman diving to grab Christ out late, isn't it? If I'm just touching my live. You see the same picture. He's the river, isn't he? But not the swamps and the marshes. They will be given over to salt. Ezekiel 47.11. Okay? So the Jordan River... Descending from Adam, Joshua 3.16, that descends into the Dead Sea where the precious souls, the axe heads of men, excuse me, are lost and cannot be brought to the surface unless Elisha does it with the stick, which is Christ, right? He throws himself into the death waters, if you will, and we float to the surface. Our souls do. Pick it up. What's that imply, by the way? Some people won't pick it up. The loss of the soul, its value so great, only God can retrieve it, right? That's compared, that Jordan River from Adam, that's death and judgment and all of this misery, that's compared to the living waters of, that flows from Christ, who is the second Adam that heals everything it touches. One kills everything it touches, the other heals. So I have this marvelous contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, the river that brings life to everything. Here you go define what a thing is. But all of these pieces fit together, and you see the new bowl, don't you? That comes into view. The new bowl 
is an earthen vessel. And it's new. It's not like the old earthen vessels. This one's new. And things, and it has this tremendous amount of significance. So recognize that a new earthen vessel has come. Bring me a new one, he says. What's the salt? Why salt? Salt in the Bible is a preservative. It's everywhere in the Bible. You have to really do some research to work it all out. It's a complex symbol, much like honey, um, but uh, much more difficult than honey. Salt is a preservative, and it is in Colossians um, 3.16 and 4.6. It's, it's good. Salt is good. That will help you right off the bat. And it's inside. It's God's grace inside. It's God's goodness inside. It's God's peace inside. So you have this image of salt being grace and peace and goodness and being inside. Christ says salt is good. So right off the bat, you know salt is good. Whenever you see salt in the Bible... It's good. Well, you will think, well, wait a minute. It seems that it, uh, salt water is bad. Uh, this has helped me in my life. You know, people come to me and say, um, you eat too much salt, bad for you. Now what do they say? Just recently, they all came out and said, no, eat salt, good for you. Well, I have Colossians 4, 6. Help me out with these things. Salt, again, inside, purity, goodness, peace, grace. Mark 9.50, all of those things will help you understand. Salt keeps, it's a, it, it has a keeping aspect to it. It prevents corruption. Okay, It holds, if you want, it maintains. There's this maintaining, holding, keeping facet. Prevention, as well as goodness of God, Peace of God, as opposed to leaven, by the way, which is, you always see them contrasted. Leaven causes corruption. Salt keeps corruption from happening. It, again, it has this holding or, or maintaining aspect. Now, back to 2 Kings 2, 20 through 22. Bring me a new bowl, and let's put this keeping, holding, maintaining goodness, and let's put it inside of it. So you see, if it is God's goodness, I'm going to put God's goodness into the new earthen vessel. And then I'm going to take that new earthen vessel over to the source of the water, where the water is being turned bad, and I'm going to pour the salt at that source, and that's going to heal the water. The curse is removed. There's no more death, no more curse on the land. Death is ended. The curse is ended. It might be helpful to you to restate or paraphrase the elements of this event a little bit. The men of Jericho, knowing that their city is cursed, are able to figure out that Elisha can do something. I imagine them saying it this way. Please notice that the city looks good on the surface, but we're cursed here. We're dying here. And he says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And obviously the solution to the curse is a new bowl with salt. And that's a, you know, yeah, why didn't we see that? Let me say it again. The solution to the curse of Genesis 3:17 through 19 is a new earthen pot with salt in it. And the salt from the new earthen bowl must be poured onto the source of the poisoned water. So then 
Second Kings 2:19 through 22 is about how to solve the curse, how to solve sin and death. What is the solution to sin and death? How do I solve it? I've got sin and death. How do I solve it? Well, I have to have a new bowl and salt. I have to have a human vessel, a new human vessel, and I have to have God's goodness in it. Okay? So the solution to sin and death, the curse of Genesis 3, is the hypostatic union. It's talking about how God intends to solve sin and death. He intends to solve sin and death by making himself, manifesting himself in the flesh. He would become human, he would add humanity, and then he would be able to pour himself out and to end death and sin for all who pick up the accent. And that's given to us in 2 Kings 2, 19, 22. And I hope you can see that that's what's happening at Matthew 4. The solution to death is God adding humanity, hypostatic union. So that's not really hard to get, but you have to have it. The men of the city believe. They ask for mercy. Death is underneath what seems to be pleasant. By the way, you really get a picture of painted death. Death is always described as beautiful. Jezebel. She will always paint herself up to look beautiful. Underneath, she's death. Painted death. 2 Kings uh, 30-37. Elisha declares the end of the curse is the hypostatic union. Is God adding humanity. Uh, God being inside of humanity. The salt inside the new earthen vessel. Okay, so the purity, the goodness, the grace of God inside this added humanity. And then that would be poured out upon sin and death. And so you have this display of the first Adam and the last Adam, both of them side by side here, both of them the source. Uh, Adam's the source of death. The, uh, Christ is the source of life. I turn the death into life by pouring the uh, salt of the second Adam, if you will, onto the, where the first Adam uh, caused all of this. So if that works for you, take it. It's not perfect. Notice as soon as the solution is given now, he solved death. He told you that the key in the Old Testament, people will tell me all the time, there's nothing in the Old Testament that says Christ is God. Everything in the Old Testament says Christ is God. And this is just another place where he lays out for you the hypostatic union, God-man. Does it with the Ark of the Covenant. He does it everywhere. Now, notice, as soon as this is told, as soon as this solution is given, Elisha is faced with death. They have to come to stop him from proclaiming the truth. They've got to stop him from healing water and feeding people. Got to kill him. There will always be those who say there is no solution to sin and death. And if you have the solution to sin and death, then they don't, they're going to kill you. That's what they're going to do. They will say death is forever. As you know, they say this is merely a very brief, temporal, random, chaotic thing that you have. It's not life. It's not existence. It's just a little tiny, temporary poof time you have that ends in blackness. There's no hope, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's nothing. All there is is death. And the Bible tells you, 2 Kings 2.19, no, 
The water can be fixed and the ground can be fixed. All I need is a new bowl and salt. All I need is God as man. And I fix it. No place else in the history of man is there a book that says this is the solution to sin and death. This one says it over and over and over again. The only one that does. And, and as you know, you see the, the monistic evolutionary philosophy here, which dominates our schools, our media, our culture. They're the, they're the merchants of forever death. They constantly tell you death is forever. Bill made the comment in the, uh, in the uh, precursor to the offering, Bill the Cow, for those of you who follow on the Internet. They always uh, ask me, which one is Bill Fast, Fast Bill and which one is Bill the Cow? They're the same guy. I'm kidding. They're two different guys, obviously. But Bill the Cow said very, very astutely that if you, if you go out and tell people that there is a solution to death, uh, you'll never be elected to anything. If you say there's a potter and he makes pottery and he's a creator, you'll never get elected to anything anymore. The merchants of death, they don't like that. They want you to believe that it is hopeless, that death is forever, death is all-powerful. And they always show up whenever God reveals his solution. And they have here in uh, the Second Kings when, uh, when the soldiers come out immediately to kill the one who is healing waters. Can't have it. Can't have anybody say there's a solution. You've got to kill these people that do that. And John 11, if you look at John 11, that's the first resurrection of Lazarus. Notice how I say that. Lazarus gets to be resurrected twice. He's not worried about it the second time. Okay, that's another such example in Scripture. Jesus Christ, God, Creator God, the solution has is, is actually come. The new bowl and the salt is actually here now, standing there. What the new bowl and the salt says is going to happen is actually happened, and he's surrounded by the merchants of death in John 11, 33 through 38. I've got this huge contingent of professional death forever people. And they're mourning and screaming and wailing that death is forever. We're all going to die. Grab a beer. Right? That's, that, that is what Budweiser says, right? That's their motto. You're going to go through life and die, and death is forever, so I have one of our beers. Never drink enough rubbing alcohol. I love TJI Fridays for for scamming the people with rubbing alcohol. It doesn't get any more fun than that. Look that up sometime. Anyway, Christ is surrounded by the merchants of forever death, and he weeps for them. He's not weeping for Lazarus. He's weeping for them. He's about to suck Lazarus right out. Not a problem for Lazarus. He's got a good, good deal. But uh, he's going to, uh, but he does weep for the others. He, again, and he's not weeping for himself. And if you read carefully John eleven fourteen through 44, you'll notice this word belief all the time. Believe, 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 believe. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the new bowl and the salt? Do you believe that? That he's the solution to death and sin. John eleven fourteen through forty four is marinated in unbelief. Unbelief everywhere. Every nobody believes him. Not even his apostle. Thomas is great. Okay, let's all go to where Lazarus is and we'll be killed there too. His apostles didn't believe. Martha, Mary, oh whatever you say, we okay. Nobody believes that he's the new bull in the salt. <coughs> 
and he repeatedly calls upon all who are there to believe. And eventually, it happens. Many Jews believe because of him pulling Lazarus out. It says a multitude believe. And so I got a bunch of people believe. So now what happens next? As soon as people start believing that the new bowl and the, and the salt can fix the water, what do we got to have? What happens next? We got to kill him. Immediately after he pulls out Lazarus is this section in the Bible. Now they're going to kill him. We can't have him running around defeating death. Can't have it. That would happen today. If somebody, if Christ came today and went into the hospitals and, and re- went into the morgues and resurrected everybody, went into the graveyards, because that's what he does here, he pulls people out of the graveyard, the first thing the government would do is try to kill him. Guaranteed. They're going to try to kill him when he doesn't. You can't get more stupid than them. But I just want you to see this pattern. It's the same pattern in John eleven forty eight. 48. Immediately the Pharisees decide to kill him. They can't let him go on doing this. They say, if we don't kill this guy, everybody's going to believe in him. That's what they say. John eleven forty eight. Same pattern as 2 Kings 2, 19 through 24. They eventually send a captain and an army um, um, after Christ, just as they did after Elijah. Anyway, now, Psalm 22, 1. I know I don't have much time. I should read uh, Matthew 27, 39 through 55. Because, and we'll do it next week. Matthew 27, 39 through 55. God's response to them, Christ's response is Psalm 22. Jesus responds to save yourself, come down you bald head. That's what they're saying to him. Exactly what they say in Second Kings. I put them together for you, but that's what they say. They say this to him. If he is God, come down and we will believe. Jesus' response to that is Psalm 22.1. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is responding to what they are saying to him. One of the thieves says this to him. I'm going to jump ahead get this done. One of the two thieves on the cross says, Why doesn't he save himself and save us? And you know what the Bible calls that? I, I, I should read it, Tom. It's in Luke. Luke, by the way, adds all the information you need. He, he makes it so that you understand what's going on on the cross and why God says what he says then. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself. That's blasphemy. We covered that last week, didn't we? If you are the Christ, save yourself. You need to know why that's blasphemy. Last week I asked the question, does Christ need to be saved? No. So you're saying that he does need to be saved, and that is what? 
blasphemy. You put sin in him. He needs to be saved. He never needs to be saved. He is the saved. He gives the salvation. He doesn't need it. So you have to understand it's blasphemy. So when all of these people are screaming at him, save yourself, come down, you bald head. If you're God, come down and we will believe in you. All of that is blasphemy. And he responds to this blasphemy with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1, that's his response. He isn't forsaken. And he never says it that way, does he? He always says, my father. And Luke says this to us. It's really important. Because Luke said, and when Christ had cried out with a loud voice, so he still has a very loud voice. I, I estimate it's probably 500 decibels. It might be more than that. It might have been heard over the entire world and into the angelic realm. I have no idea, but I know it was loud really, really loud, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, I'm snuffing my life out now and I'm coming. That's what he says to his father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to the Jews who were saying blasphemous things about him? It isn't directed to the father. If it was, it would say, my father, my father. Or it would say, Father. Or would say, myself, myself, why have I forsaken me? Because he's God. You have to understand that. Those words have no meaning at all to the Godhead. They have all the meaning in the world to the Jews who were blaspheming, asking him to save himself. He quotes King David. Why would he do it? He does it because it's a what? It's a curse. And they know it. They understand very, very quickly. We are in the same pattern. Confronted, Christ is confronted with the exact same word for word mocking that confronted Elisha and Elijah in 2 Kings 1 and 2. And when confronted with it, he responds by quoting King David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't hit him with consuming fire. He doesn't hit him with two female bears. He hits him with Psalm 22.1. Somehow Psalm 22.1 is the equal of the consuming fire sent by Elijah and the pronounced curse of, and the two female bears that defended Elijah. And by the way, the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, is the one sending the fire. 22.1 is a pronounced curse upon the mockers below. Something very profound is happening. Very profound. He's responding to blasphemy. And they return beating their breast. By the way, that's a, that's a contrast with the people who stayed there. If God abandons you and forsakes you, how's it going? Not good. They knew by blaspheming this man on the cross that God had now abandoned them. He abandoned the nation of Israel and pronounces a curse on them, a blindness on them. And we'll finish that next week. Okay, let's rise and be dismissed. And, and that, of course, 
as soon if you close your eyes during prayer, what happens? People start maneuvering. You know, in some churches they go through your purses and your wallets. Here they start to get a better place for the brisket. Matt's brisket. How many? How many can you feed with the brisket, Matt? Four, just one. I expect to see elbows. uh, Basketball players will be be in pretty good shape. No, I'm sure there's enough. Let's rise and be dismissed.